on today's episode, heart rate variability for measuring recovery with Simon Wegeriff. Welcome to the Run Smarter podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default, become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. sounding a bit raspy. <laughs> I have just woken up from a nap, which I am starting to think is more important every single day now that I, I know more and more about recovery and how <laughs> important sleep is. Uh, so yes, excuse me for that. Today, oh, I have notes for my intro. Let me open up because I've got a lot to say. <laughs> Welcome back to Recovery Month. I hope you enjoyed your uh, first interview with Dr. Izzy Smith uh, last week. I have been getting a lot of feedback on social media, people reaching out saying they're loving it, they're loving the concept, they're loving the interview, and I hope you enjoyed this one. If you have not caught up and you've just dived straight into this episode, uh, we are doing Recovery Month, it is the theme, uh, and more specifically, this isn't really that intended, but this week will be Heart Rate Week. <laughs> I will be interviewing Simon Wegeriff today to talk about heart rate variability. And then at the end of the week, I will be releasing my conversation with Dr. Chris Schneider to talk about heart rate and what heart rate does for recovery. Should we be measuring it, etc. And so we dive into the science today. We dive into what the research shows and the application of heart rate variability, what it actually is, and what is the significance, and more particularly, what is Simon's opinion when it comes to the significance of heart rate variability. I won't explain too much what it is if you're not too sure what it is. Um, just hang on a couple of minutes because Simon does a fantastic job of explaining what it is. Keep in mind, um, Simon Wegeriff does have or does sell apps and sensors around heart rate variability. Um, his website is myithlete.com. So it's M-Y-I-T-H-L-E-T-E.com, myithlete. And he um, sells a whole bunch of apps and sensors. So there might be um, a slight kind of bias towards the significance, you can say, because uh, he is well-versed in what the evidence shows and what the research has published when it comes to heart rate variability. Um, he's published it all on his website and you can go check out the content there. But when you're involved in a certain field, you do gravitate towards that research. So um, I do have a pretty balanced, um, I guess, balanced conversation with Simon and then with Chris. And so later in the week, when I when you listen to Chris, Chris has a totally unbiased view, but 
when it comes to Simon, I probably can't think of a better person to have on to talk about heart rate variability because he is so well-versed with the research that is out there and he has an excellent style of describing what heart rate variability is. And yeah, my view of it, I think it is a great piece of the puzzle for recovery and making smarter decisions. Definitely there's science supporting it and it's a great tool for uh, learning about your body and whether we see more robust evidence emerging like in the future and other researchers start saying that the or having more bold statements with like i guess becoming more confident in how well it's or what the representation is like or how significant it is i did ask shona helson um, when she was on a webinar and she wasn't too sure of what how the evidence stacks up she says there's definitely emerging evidence it's um, somewhat new, um, even though the research has been out for a very long time now. Um, I guess the attention is quite new. Um, she does seem to think it is a really nice piece of the puzzle, but that's what it is, a piece of the puzzle when it comes to the rest of the, the picture. So yeah, we have a nice balanced conversation with Simon and then with Chris. Um, before we dive into today's interview, uh, I thought I'd give you an update on my foot. If you are keeping up to date with, uh, I did talk about what Brody learnt with past uh, injuries. And throughout that, during the intro, I was saying I was developing a bit of foot pain and it was very, very mild, but still there. And I thought I'd just give you an update. So I did go through phases of thinking I was all better for, for a couple of days. And then it just come back, um, not necessarily with running, um, it's getting quite annoying now because it's like all the exercise that I'm doing is not making it worse. And I am increasing my, um, I'm increasing my, I guess, running mileage and my exercise that I'm doing and it's not making it worse, but then again, it's still there. And so I do think it's slightly improving because now in the mornings, it is more achy in the mornings than the rest of the day, which shows that, you know, it's a good indication that it's not healing, but it's no longer painful when I weight bear. So when I walk and put weight through it, it's not painful. It's pain-free, but it is achy when I lift my toes up towards the ceiling. Um, it is achy when I move my foot around lying in bed. So again, it's um, my exercise is fine, but it's getting frustrating because it's still there. <laughs> um, but another thing to report, I actually, with the foot, I might go into, I might think about having a week or two off running and just do more swimming, uh, do more cycling and to see how that goes. We'll see. I'll test and tweak and report back. However, I do have another thing to report. About two weeks ago, I had a proximal hamstring tendinopathy flare up and I have had proximal hamstring tendinopathy a while ago and it has, it sparked up for uh, a couple of days and it took me a couple of days to actually realize it was sparked up. I had been doing some intense sessions on the bike. I had been doing a lot more sitting at home. Um, I drove to Ocean Grove with my girlfriend and that was a lot of sitting as well. Maybe something along those lines might've flared it up. But since I realized that I was get that it was reacting, I have now changed my sitting. I usually sit on a pillow at home uh, when I do a lot of desk work, uh, but I've swapped it for a more fluffier, I guess more, um, robust pillow. Oh, I've also, um, started doing, I started standing more when I'm working. Uh, I do work from home all the time and I've just simply made a, a stand desk where I get one of my, 
uh, chairs and just put it on my office desk and put my laptop on the chair and somewhere to put my mouse. And I have been rotating sitting to standing, so I'm spending less time sitting. Um, so that's another thing I've been doing as well. I've done some isometrics to load up the, te- the tendon before I run and before I exercise. I have started doing some heavy loading specifically for that tendon two to three times a week. I've started more swimming and now it's relatively settled, but I'm still doing my heavy loading. So um, jumped on the rehab really, really quickly and it's settled down now. Um, So yeah, just making smart decisions along the way. I'll keep sharing my journey because injuries will keep sparking up and I'll keep sharing my experience as I um, recognize and as I, I guess, make adjustments so that I learn along the way and you guys can learn along the way as well. That's all I had written down. So um, it's a bit of a long intro, almost into 10 minutes. So I guess we can just dive into Simon. So without further ado, here is Simon Wegeriff. Well, Simon, thanks for coming on and joining me. Uh, I have just started delving into the science of heart rate variability and your website was fantastic with already having a whole bunch of articles for me to go through, which is amazing. Um, I thought we would just get started by talking about your career, your background and how you got involved in this interest. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on Brody. It's a, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, so my my interest really in heart rate variability was sparked um, back in about 2008 or so. So my background is as um, as an engineer. I was originally a broadcasting engineer working in the early days of digital in in the, at the BBC, which is you know was a great foundation. And I spent um, a number of years working for Philips, and that was Philips in the United Kingdom. I fulfilled one of my childhood ambitions by going working in Silicon Valley, which was. And, and still is, of course, the tech mecca. Um, so I really love doing that. And um, uh, since then, I've, I've sort of been responsible for managing and starting some businesses in biotech, et cetera. So with my background as an engineer, but um, I've always been a, a pretty enthusiastic, but not particularly talented endurance athlete. So originally running and then triathlon, Olympic distance up to to half Ironman and more recently endurance cycling is, is, is my passion at the moment and has been for a few years now so I think it was back in about 2008 or so that I, um, I used to regularly get a research um, a sports research digest called peak performance and in there there was an article about this phenomenon called heart rate variability with quite a complex recommendation by the author as to how you might measure it yourself um, but no, you know, that didn't seem a very practical way of doing it to me. So I immediately started reading up about heart rate variability, um, what it was, how it could help us assess um, fatigue, recovery, um, readiness to train, readiness to compete, how it can help us to manage our total stress load in life. And um, and and it became an all-consuming interest that that caused me to quit the day job in 2009 and, um, and, and start athlete. Brilliant. And uh, I, I kind of feel bad for asking this question because I know you have to answer it every time, but if someone didn't mm-hmm. know anything about heart rate variability and no kind of scientific background, how do you best like to describe what it actually is? Yeah. 
So I, I guess most people would um, think that uh, the way your heart beats at rest is with a sort of metronome consistency. A lot of people have a resting heart rate of about 60 beats per minute. So that means on average that your heart beats once a second. Well, you know, that's, that's true. But what actually happens behind the scenes is that um, uh, the subconscious nervous system or the autonomic nervous system, as it's known, is actually constantly interacting, trying to find the most energy efficient way for your body to operate. And one of the ways this is reflected is between the interplay of the two branches of the nervous system. Most people will be familiar with the sympathetic branch of the nervous system because that's the one that's, that's you know, associated with the fight or flight response. So the sympathetic nervous system is the one that stimulates the production of adrenaline. It gets you ready for action and it does that pretty quickly within a, within a couple of seconds or so, really. You've got adrenaline flowing around your body. Your heart beats more quickly, more forcefully. You switch off blood to areas that don't need it in your body, digestion, and it, it basically primes you for action. But there's another, there's a, the, you know, the other side of the coin here, the, the, the yin and yang is that the, uh, the parasympathetic nervous system, which um, runs alongside the sympathetic nervous system, and in many ways has more sort of complex and subtle effects on the body, is the one that's responsible for, uh, you know, your rest, recovery, your digestion, the most efficient way for your body to operate all the time. And somewhat luckily for us, um, the sympathetic, the uh, parasympathetic nervous system um, controls the heart at rest in such a way as it produces small changes in the heart's beat-to-beat -beat timing. So when you breathe in, actually, your heart rate gets faster, and when you breathe out, your heart rate goes slower. And in healthy athletes, this happens to quite a marked extent. So you can you can definitely measure that, and you can you can you can even feel that in your pulse if you breathe in and and you breathe out. You might well feel that your pulse is slowing as you breathe out. So heart rate variability measures those variations. So we measure each heartbeat interval very precisely. And then there's various different kinds of math you can do with those what are called beat to beat or RR intervals. And you can process those in different ways. And when I started um, my serious work on wanting to make a product that everyday athletes like myself could use to measure your own fatigue and recovery whilst training, I looked at the various different measures and found one, which is which has now become very popular. And that one's called RMSSD. And that one basically looks at beat-to-beat -beat variations and does a calculation on them and produces a number, which is actually quite user-friendly at the end of the process. So we're getting some insight into what our body's doing without us really knowing we're kind of measuring this, like you said, yin and yang of the nervous system. And that it's a really nice way of putting it. So the, the sympathetic would be like the let's go, let's take action now. And I think a lot of people can like experience, like if they've been scared, if someone's jumped out and scared them, like how quickly your heart starts beating. It's like almost instantaneously, that's kind of like yeah. a, we need to get out of here. Let's get moving. Whereas on the other side of the yin and yang equation, you've got this parasympathetic, which is almost like the opposite. It's like, let's calm down, let's recover, let's um, digest, let's do all that sort of thing. And so what you're saying is if the, the heart rate variability is kind of like in sync, if it's, if it's measuring at optimal levels, that means your nervous system is kind of in sync with one another. Therefore it's a good test to show that um, 
your body's recovered or it's just like uh, operating optimally and efficiently? Yes, it is. So the, the way our bodies was intended to function was with the parasympathetic branch dominant, certainly at rest. And the sympathetic branch only really came in when it was really needed. So, you know, fight or flight, very literally. Um, nowadays, of course, you know, we have a lot of stresses that we weren't necessarily designed to cope with very well by evolution. So a number of people tend to have um, that, uh, sources of stress in their lives from, you know, um, um, you know, lots of activities that they're trying to, to put in, um, you know, things that, that go on in their everyday lives, which, which they find stressful. And that will tend to activate the sympathetic uh, branch of the uh, nervous system more than was originally intended. But what we want to get back to is that parasympathetic rest or digest dominance. And the heart rate variability is much higher in that state than it is in the sympathetic fight or flight state. So we can harness that quite usefully, really, to do a relatively straightforward measure of this variation, turn it into a number. And then what we need to do with the number is to calibrate an individual, um, an individual's balance between their sympathetic and their parasympathetic via what's commonly called a baseline. So you'll have your own individual baseline. If you're young, fit, um, athletic and unstressed, your baseline will be pretty high. So in a lot of the number systems, like the one used by iFleet, for instance, that'll be up towards 100. And then if you're relatively stressed, um, if you're getting a little bit older, um, and if you're not recovering, so if your sleep and your diet are not working very well for you, then that number will tend to be much lower. And in people with chronic diseases, um, whether that be heart disease or, or um or, or other conditions, diabetes especially, the heart rate variability will tend to be at really quite low levels. That's great. And is the number itself like in seconds, milliseconds, what are we talking about? Hmm. Yeah, so it is, it is in milliseconds. So um, a typical, um, a typical um, heart rate variability number for... Um, a, a normal healthy individual who's not particularly athletic trained would probably be 25 to 30 milliseconds RMSSD. Most of the apps, including iFleet, will translate that number into one that's, that's easier to use. It's more intuitive and has better statistical properties. So on the iFleet scale, it might be 60 to 70, might be a typical number for somebody who's you know, perfectly healthy, um, but not especially well, um, you know, fitness trained. Higher numbers are associated with higher levels of um, aerobic capacity and lower numbers will be associated with more sort of lower fitness capacity or, or chronic stresses or some ill health. Yeah. And I think if someone doesn't have any scientific background, no knowledge of this, they're probably thinking mm. like heart rate that's low. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes. So fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. It's quite good. But when we're talking about heart rate variability, it's actually the higher number, which means that you have recovered. It means that your parasympathetic yeah. nervous system is 
the more dominant during rest, that kind of thing. How would you talk about training? Because we're we're wanting to make smarter yeah. training decisions with these recreational runners. Yeah. How would you see that there's how would you expect there to be a change in heart rate variability with training loads doing too much too soon or like changing up the the weekly training cycle how would you see the heart rate variability changing throughout that yeah yeah so typically what would happen when somebody steps up their training load um, would be that their daily heart rate variability values would start to dip and they might dip by let's say 10 or 15 percent something like that so heart rate variability is a pretty sensitive measure it's more sensitive than resting heart rate so a you know resting heart rate has been used by you know athletes you know for for, for decades probably hundreds of years even um as a, as a gauge of of you know when when somebody's doing too much training too much physical activity um but i've certainly heard comments from professional cyclists before now um you know who, who've started to use hrv and heart rate variability saying that by the time your resting heart rate increases then it's too late you're already cooked whereas with hrv you get a more progressive a more sensitive a more gradual indication that you've got an imbalance going between the amount of training that you're doing or the intensity of the training and the amount by which you're recovering now, it's important to remember there's two components to this um, to, to this equation, if you like. So you don't, you don't always have to dial back the training load. You can do other things as well to increase the recovery, you know, most notable of which is sleep. And, you know, I don't know how many podcast interviews um, or discussions that I've had with athletes who've said, you know, the most important recovery tool is sleep. So you know, get another hour or another sleep cycle, which is a 90 minute cycle. And, you know, that's going to enhance your ability to actually deal with higher training loads. Another thing is your diet. Um, there are some theories of overtraining, partly coming from the AIS, actually, the, the Australian Institute of Sport. Um, the overtraining is fundamentally caused by a balance of uh, an imbalance of nutrient intake versus versus expenditure so that people simply can't absorb sufficient quantities of the nutrients they need to fuel their activity and to and to you know fuel their recovery and adaptation and supercompensation so you know it's not just a case of my hrv is low today i better dial back on the training you can you can use hrv in some very smart ways to make adjustments to um your recovery i mean you know stress management helps as well um so sort of yoga deep breathing um cold water swimming all kinds of other things that can really help your recovery and help you deal with 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 training loads more effectively yeah well this is one of the ideas or while well, i'd love to have you on to discuss around this because this whole month is dedicated to recovery and strategies around recovery and in most cases yeah. people would know, appreciate sleep and nutrition and um, levels of stress and appreciate their, that impact on recovery but with heart rate variability we've got a way to measure it and i think in the past if people don't have those devices or have that measurement they're just going off feel and it's like yeah i ran a hard session two days ago or i competed in my marathon you know five days ago i feel kind of good how do i know if i'm ready to get back out there how do i know if my body's like bounced back if it's rebounded from the hard intense sessions and we do recognize that 
sickness, stress, sleep, nutrition, all these have an impact on recovery yet. Um, there's no real way of have an accurate measure to see if your body has bounced back, but the seems like the heart rate variability can be a really nice tool to, to work in those recovery, um, work in those recovery components. So you have mentioned in the past that things like sleep, stress, sickness can affect heart rate variability without anything, any change in training. Um, yep. and you did refer back to like that total stress load, um, throughout mm. the week. Can you maybe just delve into that a little bit more? Mm. Yeah, so so total load is the idea that um, your body actually perceives and reacts to the total stress that that's happening in your life, not just what we traditionally think of stress. For instance, you know, if you're if you're stuck in a traffic jam, or or you know, you've been given too much to do at work, or something like that. So the way your body actually experiences stress is as the sum total of a number of different influences on your body. And that's good physical stress, chemical stress, um, you know, nu- nu- nutrition stress, um, and multiple sources, uh, emotional and mental stress are pretty important sources of stress too. Um, and in, in fact, for some people, you know, mental and emotional stresses are the, the, the biggest, the, the number one source of stress. And one of the things that you can do with heart rate variability, if you're in a if you're in a state of constant, you know, your, your training loads are fairly constant, is you can ex- just experiment with one thing at a time, and find out what it is that works for you. So you know, is it extending sleep a little bit more? Is it having one less beer or one less glass of wine close to bedtime? Um, you know, is 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 it changing your diet a little bit? Is it you know making sure that you fuel properly for the workload that you're undergoing? Um, you know, are you going to be experimenting with like intermittent fasting? Um, there's there's a whole bunch of things you know which which we all hear about on um, you know on podcasts and our own sort of researches into the internet, but you know you, you're not sure how well each of those is going to work for you, we'll just do an experiment, keep everything else the same and try varying that one thing and do it for several days in a row, preferably about a week or so. And you will almost certainly see that your heart rate variability reacts to that. It might react a little or it might react quite a lot. I know in my case, I, you know, I've been measuring myself daily for 10 years now. And despite, you know, being 10 years older, my heart rate variability should have declined. But in fact, it's still, it's, it's probably 20 to 30% up on where it was when I started this whole, um, this whole experience, this whole exercise. So I've been constantly experimenting with little changes. Uh, one, of the, one of the first ones was making my training more predominantly aerobic. So doing a lot more zone one, zone two work um, than, than typical, you know, tempo runs, rides, workouts that a lot of sort of, you know, uncoached recreational athletes do that immediately, you know, that very quickly made a difference and, and has continued to do so for, for years, really. Uh, another one was slow, deep breathing. I was very skeptical about the benefits of yoga style breathing, but um, I actually tried it and I, I couldn't believe how much that made my HRV go up. You know, as they say in the small print, your results may vary. But what you can do with HRV is to find things that work for you. And it's it's such a good overall sensitive indicator 
that it gives you the ability to, to try things for yourself and see what effects those have. If they produce a good gain, consolidate them, try to make them into a habit. You know, if they don't, then, and they're a lot of work, then maybe put them to one side and, and try something else uh, the next week. But, you know, keep on experimenting. That's the way to, you know, improve your, your, your prospects for longevity, you know, how you feel. And pretty importantly nowadays, resilience as well. So, High HRV is associated with, with resilience, and that means you're more able to cope with stresses and demands and, you know, dreaded viruses, uh, dare I say. So, you know, good resilience is, 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 something to be, um, is something to be treasured. And again, it's something that you can build up um, by making experiments uh, on, on yourself and see how well your HRV baseline rises. I'm glad you mentioned the deep breathing, that kind of thing, because I measure my heart rate and heart rate variability overnight. And it was probably about two months ago now, I attended this Tony Robbins event and we did a lot of meditation. The seminars went till like 1130 at night, which was ridiculous, but the, um, the breathing exercises and yoga stuff that they made us do at the end of one of these days, um, it was to get into state and we did a lot of deep breathing and then I went to bed straight after that um, and started measuring my um, heart rate, heart rate variability. And it was just, super, my heart rate was super low and my heart rate variability was super high for a couple of hours at the first part of the night. And I just woke up and was yeah. just super surprised looking at those measurements. And yeah. I listened to a podcast which had a guest <laughs> on around um, breathing and he said one of the best methods he likes to use to help someone uh, help someone sleep or put them to sleep is to take a deep breath in for five seconds, hold it for a couple of seconds, but then take 10 seconds to slowly breathe out and mm. do that five times. And you should uh, be in a more calm, relaxed state to fall asleep. And what you're talking about makes perfect sense. It's the, the exhale kind of um, makes the parasympathetic more dominant or slows down your heart rate or just uh, triggers this more, restful state and if you're yeah. spending more time in that exhale and less time in that inhale then it can uh, start triggering a lot of that rest and help put you to sleep so that all makes a whole whole bunch of sense mm -hmm. and, and breathing is such an unusual thing in that respect because it's one of the very few bodily functions we have that can um, you know operates perfectly satisfactorily without any conscious control, but we can take over a conscious control of it. Um, and we can, we can use um, the, um, the, the, the reactions that it produces and the responses it produces via the um, subconscious, the autonomic nervous system to enhance our ability to um, exactly as, as, as you say, Brody, exactly to, uh, uh, to relax and become more calm and um, if you breathe, you know, if, if I, I found nowadays that if I do my um, uh, zone two bike ride workouts in the mornings, um, you know, I will try to breathe deliberately through my nose whilst I'm actually doing those. So I'll be out doing a bike ride for 30 or 40 minutes and I'll be doing breathing exercises essentially the whole way around, which has a couple of benefits. First of all, it's, you know, it's a good breathing exercise. Um, secondly, there's a whole bunch of benefits that you get um, from breathing through your nose, you know, your nose has got filters, it warms the air up, it's, it's winter time in the Northern Hemisphere here, and it helps filter out um, uh, particles and bugs and things as well. 
Um, but also the fact that you're breathing quite slowly and deliberately also limits you know, your, your ability and your tendency to, to pace yourself too hard or, or too fast in what should be you know, a, a well-regulated, low-intensity workout. So you know, you, you, I, f- I find I end up with a bunch of benefits from doing you know, my, my sort of um, yeah, morning routine like that. Okay. And you have mentioned a couple of times already the importance of establishing a baseline because everyone's different and we all need to go off what's best for us. And the best way we can measure is to have a really nice consistent baseline to start with and then start experimenting and see how it affects. What is, what's your advice on um, creating a baseline for someone? Hmm. Um. I can advise, first of all, perhaps how not to do it. I mean, we, we have a, you know, over the years, we've had a lot of people um, writing in to athlete and asking for advice saying, you know, I am overtrained right now. You know, I've started to use HRV. You know, what should I do? And, and the advice is always you've got to rest because we don't know what your baseline is right now. Um, one of the sort of slight controversies or, or difficulties with HRV interpretation is um, that, um, you know, HRV significantly altered from your baseline could be in either direction. So you've got an autonomic imbalance going on. Um, and what you need to do to get to your baseline is to be in a, to be in a state where you're, you're really not very stressed. It's preferable that you should start measuring heart rate variability in a deloaded or a, you know, a, a, a sort of an early phase of your periodization program if, if you're doing that. Um, because we want to see what what numbers your body is going to produce when it's relatively well rested before you start piling the load on. So that would be my, you know, that that would be my advice is to find a period of time when you know you're, you know, you're, you're not in the middle of a, of a periodization program, you're not peaking um, before a race, and you're not already overtrained. If if you think that you are overtrained you need you need to rest anyways and then you know your baseline is, is will emerge as as you recover okay and over how many days what time of the day um what what's yeah. your advice around that yeah so time of day is an important one so this wasn't very well established when when i started i fleet in 2009 but what made sense to me then and what most people have subsequently adopted is to have a simple test first thing in the morning. So um, a short um, uh, one minute in, in the case of athlete test as soon as you wake up um, is fine because you're doing it under a controlled condition every day. You're doing it before you've had any food or beverage, um, food or drinks or caffeinated beverages um, before you've done any you know, any, any work or social media interaction. So you're not sort of, you know, excited or in any way stressed by that. So first thing in the morning is ideal. Also doing a test first thing in the morning gives you the ability to, you know, plan your day ahead. So if, for instance, you had a particular kind of workout planned, but your HRV isn't where you expected it to be on that day, um, then it can help you, you know, make some active changes to your training program um, in order to do something that your body is ready for on that day. And I think that that's an area where we're going to see some really nice initiatives over the next few years is in, 
um, periodization and daily training, which is guided by recovery, and, and that leads to a better better performance and adaptation overall. Great. Let's dive into that a little bit more because the the whole concept of this podcast is making smarter training decisions, and hmm. I think having this sort of measurement is perfect for it because we're we've got other ways of measuring we've got you know well well designed running programs we've got um you know strength and conditioning to help sort of make boost your performance that kind of thing and then just listening to your body is another one where we can start making decisions if there's a niggle here and there if something's just not going away something feels tight uh making decisions around that is heart rate variability just as simple as going about your usual training that's well structured and then if there's a particular day where you wake up and your heart rate variability is lower than you're expecting. And you're like, Oh, maybe I just haven't recovered. Yeah. Maybe I've overtrained yesterday, or maybe I didn't sleep too well the last couple of days. Maybe I'll just have a easier day and wait until my heart rate variability is quite high. And then I can maybe substitute my easy day for my harder day later down the track when I have recovered. Is it as simple as that? It can be pretty much as simple as that, yes. And in fact, the, uh, the, the, the there's two or three good research studies that have been done um, uh, using HRV-guided training. And, and the algorithms are, are fairly much that, yes. And, and that's for people to train as they would do normally or, or, in fact, increase the load compared to what they would be normally. And then when their heart rate variability starts to dip, then the algorithm says, okay, you know, you're going to take a slightly easier day this way or, or this um, easier day today, or the workout that you were planning to do is going to be modified to be lower intensity, shorter duration, and then see whether your HRV pops back up again tomorrow. If it does, then, you know, that'll be another, you know, a relatively higher loaded day, perhaps an HIT workout even. Um, and, and so it certainly can be used um, in that mode and, and in a, tra- a kind of traffic light mode, if you like. So, um, you know, a lot of the apps, uh, including, including iSleep, will give you a, a green, an amber or a red. And green means that you are sufficiently well recovered. You're pretty close to your baseline. You know, go do whatever it was that your coach um, or, or you plan to do that day. Um, and amber means so. So. Amber is perhaps the most the, the 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 state which has the most nuances to it, um, because amber means that the there is likely to be an imbalance between your training and your recovery. It doesn't mean that your performance is is going to have dropped off yet, but it does mean that if you carry on creating an imbalance, I mean that imbalance might be a very temporary one. It might be one or two nights of poor sleep. It might be poor diet or that you know got a lot going on at work something like that um and it could be that it will correct itself all in one or two days anyway um but a, a persistent imbalance between training and recovery given certain other life stresses will mean at some point that that not only does your hrv go down and and a lot of apps will give you like a red indication for that. But at that point also, it tends to be that your uh, resting heart rate will increase. So a red color code really should be taken seriously. I've, I've had a few of them over the years, not that many actually, 
Um, but on every occasion, I can't remember a single occasion when it's been wrong. Um, I have tried to go out training on red days and I've, I've always regretted it. So, you know, I, I just don't tend to do it anymore. It, it can mean that you're sick or it can mean that you've got a, you know, you, your body is really telling you that you need some rest and, you know, you, you should not ignore that. I was going to ask about that because when you do see some of these athletes that are in the red or heading towards the red, is it commonly the overtraining component or is it the, the training mixed with other life variables? Mm. So I, in my experience for all, but the most protected and cosseted professional athletes, um, other sources of stress in their lives are pretty significant. Um, of which, like I say, you know, for everyone with a demanding schedule, just the day-to-day activity, you know, if you've got a young family, just everything that's going on um, in your life combined with not quite enough sleep, often combined with a diet, which isn't, which isn't working perfectly for you. Um, uh, and, and, you know, that, that could mean, for instance, certainly in older athletes, that could mean, you know, not enough protein in your diet. I mean, not that many people pay, I think the right amount of attention to how much protein they got in their diet. Um, few, you know, sufficient carbs for the work to be done, making sure you've got your micronutrients in place. So you've got, uh, vitamins, particularly, you know, vitamin D, vitamin C, uh, E antioxidants. Um, and, you know, and let uh, that, that, you know, that, that lack of sort of nutritional strategy that's right for you can certainly can certainly produce a stress that can manifest itself through um, through through your heart rate variability. So yeah, I mean it's not that often that that training is the most important or the only source of, of stress in your life for most people. You know, other things other things really dominate. I'm curious to ask as well. You said you've measured your heart rate variability for ten years or so. Mm. Has there been any variables that has been quite surprising to you that has like had a detrimental effect on your heart rate variability? Um, or has it all been fairly relatively predictable? Have you, have you measured your heart rate variability on a morning and it's quite low and you'd be like, yeah, I've gone like my diet was a bit weird the last couple of days or I've encountered a lot of stress or has there been anything that's quite surprising? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, I think the answer is yes but it's most frequently illness because you know, using a good, a good uh, app software, um, you will always record um, wellness, um, wellness indicators for context on interpreting your heart rate variability. So, you, you know, you, you really should be measuring, yeah, yeah, of course, your muscle soreness, your tiredness, your mood. So um, a change in mood is, is very often quite a good early sign of um, a, a stress recovery imbalance. Um, and recording, you know, how, how much you're sleeping and your sleep quality, um, how good your dietary compliance is. Um, I think it's illness, which which usually comes as a surprise because HRV is is pretty good at detecting illness quite early on. Um, we were recently involved in um, um, a government, UK government sponsored study uh, to look at, you know, with with thousands of users, um, a few, you know. A few tens of people um, contracted COVID, and we, um, uh, you know, we put an appeal out to people for their data, 
And what we were looking for basically was, was signs in heart rate variability um, that showed, um, you know, whether or not um, it could be a, um, you know, an early warning sign of COVID and other viral diseases. And, and it's, it's the study we've done hasn't been fully conclusive, but there are certainly some signs that in, in some people, if not a lot of people, their HRV will have changed um, and, and usually negatively or sometimes unusually positively um, before the first symptoms appeared. So you're, you're, what a lot of people also don't know is that your autonomic nervous system, particularly the parasympathetic branch, is heavily involved in the regulation of your immune response. So your immune system often knows that there's an invading pathogen to be dealt with before you know, that, that, that the, the load or the viral load of that pathogen um, is sufficiently high for you to be experiencing, let's say, a cough or, or fever or something like that. So the parasympathetic nervous system is, is, is intimately involved in regulating our immune response. And for that to appear via heart rate variability um, is not a surprise, but it's also an area that's not that well researched yet. So, you know, um, practical evidence you know, is, is still to be gathered to, to support um, theories on why that might be the case. Yeah, it's, it's almost like magic. And I often get the question of like, when someone is sick, not with COVID, but like with a flu-like symptoms or just general cold, like, should I continue to run? Should I just uh, like still run, but have it like just slow recovery? Should I wait till I fully recovered until I can start exercising again? And like you said, a lot of this time is experimenting and seeing what the reaction is like and measuring your baseline and seeing how you go from there. And this can be a really nice direct relationship to be like, okay, your body is showing signs it's not recovering and maybe wait till it's at a little bit more of an optimal level. Or if it is a little bit on the low side, you can maybe go for a, a really light exercise and then just see if that how that affects your heart rate variability and recovery metrics, that kind of thing. And so your following like a measurement like an accurate measurement rather than just guessing and kind of just going off symptoms because you're not going to necessarily feel too recovered when you're managing a a sickness if you've got the cold and you're just not too sure what Mm. to do um so would you recommend that would you recommend using heart rate variability throughout a sickness to see if you can continue to exercise and how bad your body is actually affected um Yes, I would. Um, so I've, I've certainly, you know, seen some examples at first hand of people who've had quite bad uh, bouts of sickness, uh, in particular swine flu, who got up in the morning and had very, you know, unusually low values for them, quite in both cases, I remember, um, you know, uh, competing good, good level um, competitive endurance athletes. And they had very unusually low readings in the morning. And by afternoon or early evening, in, in both separate cases, they were on their way to hospital, you know, with, with bad, bad cases of swine flu. So um, HRV certainly can be a forward-looking predictor. But just as valuable as that element is, I think, seeing your path to recovery, I think, just as you're mentioning, Brody, and then, you know, coming back from sickness, um, you know, doing some, some pretty light loading to start with and then just seeing how your body copes with that. And, and HRV is a, you know, is a pretty objective way of doing that. 
I would, you know, I would issue the caveat here that um, viruses, you know, find their way around a lot of parts of your, your system, including into your heart muscle. And you need to be really careful um, about raising your heart rate um, in training um, if there is still virus, uh, if there are still viruses in your system. So you need to be really careful of that to avoid. Um, there's something like a 25% incidence rate of myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle with COVID. So you need to be really, really careful would be my advice with, with, with COVID and, and, you know, take it very easy coming back. Um, what I've seen from um, COVID, um, um, COVID athletes data with HRV is that the HRV does seem to track pretty well their recovery. Um, but I would, I would really urge caution. I mean, with, with any viral illness, uh, but, but especially with COVID, because it does, it does really find its way around your system and doing too much too soon is almost certainly going to be unproductive in the long run. And athletes, yeah, it, it may be that athletes are actually more susceptible to what's certainly called over here long COVID. I don't know whether it's also called long COVID in um, in, in Australia, but uh, where people have initially quite a relatively mild case uh, and then they think they're over it. And then a couple of weeks later, they get a huge, you know, a range of debilitating symptoms, fatigue, a bit of breathlessness, tingling, you know, disturbed sleep, a whole bunch of other symptoms like that, and that last for months and months, very unpleasant. Um, so, you know, I would really urge people to be very, very careful coming back with their training. And uh, if in any doubt, you know, try and get yourself um, uh, ultrasound and ECG scans on your heart if you have any concerns in that area. Great point. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I attended a, a webinar with Shona Holson, who is a researcher in Australia around recovery. And she was mainly talking yep. around sleep, nutrition, like hot, cold therapies, that kind of thing. But at the end, uh, there's like Q&A time. And I wanted to ask about heart rate variability. And um, she wasn't too well-versed in like the latest research. She hasn't delved into a lot of the research that's out there, um, but did say that it might just be used as like one piece of the puzzle to measure like total recovery. But I thought I'd ask a question just to get your opinion. Um, is there any like competing theories around the validity of heart rate variability? Is it at, like how confident can we say that it is accurate and we can measure full recovery? Where's the, where's the science on that? If we can, if we kind of include all of the available research that's out there. Yeah. So I would say, um, that when used with a with a sound protocol, heart rate variability is 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 quite effective. I think um, that people have doubted its effectiveness over the years for a couple of reasons. One is that some research studies took only quite periodic readings um, of heart rate variability, and by that I mean once a week or even less, perhaps three times in a training program. And an overtrained state um, can be associated with an unusually high as well as an unusually low heart rate variability. And that has certainly caused some confusion, particularly at the time when there were only, you know, like I say, a small number of measurements performed during a training program. 
What we now think actually happens in the progression of overtraining is that people become what's called sympathetically overtrained first. So that's when the sympathetic nervous system is more strongly and more permanently activated than it would be normally. So in other words, it's switched quite well on and, and doesn't really get switched off sufficiently before the next bout of training occurs. And that sympathetic overtraining um, which, it, which nowadays is, is more properly called, I think, non-functional overreaching. Um, that is a state whereby heart rate variability is low, resting heart rate is higher than normal. Um, but people, you know, it, it's kind of, some people will call that tired but wired in the sense that, um, you know, you're not fully recovered, you know you're not fully recovered, but you've got lots of adrenaline going on and you feel like you can still you know, you can still train hard, you can still, you know, do everything else in your life. The, the problem with that is that it's not sustainable. And if you carry it on, um, then sometimes the, the true overtraining state that follows from that um, is associated with more sort of adrenal burnout. In other words, that the concentrations of the um, uh, adrenaline in the system have got to a point whereby either your body kind of stops producing adrenaline in the same quantities it did before because it gets um, adrenal fatigue or that your body's receptors downregulate or a combination of the two. The downregulation of the receptors means that there might be quite high hormone concentrations present, but your body doesn't perceive it as such. So you, you, you can find yourself in a state whereby um, your resting heart rate is lower than normal, your HRV is much higher than normal, and you feel really, really tired. And that's, that's sometimes called parasympathetic um, overtraining or overreaching. So I think there's definitely been some confusion about those um, in research studies that, that have been done in the past. I think another thing which has... Um, you know, which is a problem for HRV, is that daily measurements have quite a bit of variation. So, so HRV, you know, you could take three back-to-back -back readings and find a five-point or more difference between them. So the protocol that you use to take your measurements is quite important. What we have quite often heard is that people say, well, I don't think, you know, HRV is reliable because I measured it first and I got a 75 and then I measured it again immediately afterwards and I got a 70 and then I measured it a third time and I got a 68 or something like that. So it keeps going downwards. The reason it keeps going downwards is you're not really doing independent tests. What you're doing is you're seeing a result, then you're doing another measurement immediately with knowledge of that first result. And you're sort of curious and a bit anxious about the result. And what that tends to do is actually to influence the result. So you're becoming partially sympathetic, you know, your, your adrenal levels are, your adrenaline levels are raised when you're doing the subsequent measurements. And that's why they change. It's not necessarily the fact that the HRV measurement is unreliable. So it's a bit like blood pressure in that sense, because that's what you would get if you did multiple back-to-back -back readings with pressure. And that's, you know, that, that's actually quite common. And that, that's part of what they call white coat hypertension, right? So when you go to the doctor's office and you get your blood pressure measured, it's way higher than it would have been if you were doing it very calmly um, at, at home for some people. So I think that's, that's something that's, that's, um, that has tended to work against the credibility of HRV. Um, another one I think is confusion over the optimum position to measure HRV. Um, I, I've always done my HRV standing up. 
um, because quite early on in my researches, I read a paper by, a, in fact, it was a PhD thesis by a Finnish researcher who looked at something called parasympathetic saturation. So in very fit people, when they're lying down, their parasympathetic nervous system is pretty much fully on. So it's putting the brakes on their heart rate, and that might lead to a heart rate in the 40s or even lower. When the brakes are fully on, you're not going to see much variation day to day. And that tends to happen when people are fit people do their HRV lying down. Um, so in, in, in my opinion, you know, lying down measurements when you're very calm don't lead to much daily variation. And people say, I stepped my, step my training load right up, but my HRV didn't change. Well, yeah, I, I, I suspect that that may be due to the, you know, the position that they're measuring in. So I, I would argue that you need to have your upper body upright. Um, if, you're very, if you're really quite fit, then standing up, but, but if not, sitting is fine. Um, so I think high variability in re readings and HRV sometimes not changing when you increase training load or very other, very other stresses can be down to the protocol. So I, th I think the protocol is important to get the most out of HRV. Um, I, th I think at, th at the end of the day, you know, HRV is a useful measure. There can be some psychology associated with it, especially in professional sports as well. You know, at, at least one head of performance at a, you know, uh, at a world tour cycling team has said, well, we don't necessarily want a tool to tell people to take it easy in training. You know, we, we, you know, we want people to go out and, you know, our, our, our team members, our athletes to go out and, and, and train as hard as they can. And, you know, we'll use a maximal exercise test or something to determine when, when, when they've gone too far. Um, so there can certainly be some psychology involved in, um, the interpretation of HRV in, in professional sports, not so much in the, in, in, in the amateur ones. And, and another thing is, I mean, you, you just, you kind of need to get used to it as well. You need to breathe in a consistent way, take the measurement at, at, at the same time every day. You know, some lab-based research studies might have taken tests when people have come into the lab. You know, they may have had a journey with some, you know, some uncertainty. They may have had a one or two cups of coffee before they come in. So, you know, some uncontrolled variables. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, the protocol can, uh, can answer most of those. Yeah. Great information today. That's awesome. As we wrap up, I wanted to ask the question, mm -hmm. if a recreational runner just purchased one of um, your devices and wanted to start measuring their heart rate variability, what are your tips uh, that they can start implementing for them to best utilize that measurement? What are some practical tips? Um, well, I think, as we said earlier, you know, take a little bit of time to build up a baseline and, um, you know, incorporate the measurement into your daily routine. So find a time when you can be, you know, you just got up, um, you know, use a bathroom if you need to, and then sort of, you know, do your measurement and, and do it the same way every day. Also, kind of, you know, make sure that the sensor and, and the software that you're using are validated for HRV. There's, there's you know, the, 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 there are quite a few devices which will measure heart rate variability nowadays, but not all of them will do it accurately. And there's only really one way to know if what you're using is accurate, and that's if it's been independently validated. And by independently validated, I mean a university or other competence institution has taken you know 
your the, uh, the the product you're planning to use and has put it through some independent tests and said yes this is accurate or this is sufficiently accurate to be used um, by athletes and there's there's not very many products that have actually you know had that testing done on them and and, and have come out as accurate um, so first of all choose equipment and, and software which one has been validated two that contains the right amount of detail for you you know you a, lo a lot of people you know, are really happy with a traffic light scheme um, and, and, and a number. And that may be all you need, or it may be that you want to record everything and you want to do it twice. So you're doing it in maybe in training peaks or another training software as well as, as well as HRV. But, you know, pick, pick something that you, that, that's got a nice user interface, something you think you can use, which is convenient um, because, you know, with, with all of these kind of measurements, they they're, they're only any use to you if you're actually going to use them frequently. Um, so, you know, having something which is usable and friendly and reliable is, is, is really important. So those would be my recommendations. Establish a baseline in a period when you're not, you're not particularly stressed in your day-to-day -day life or by training. So you can see your baseline emerge before you start varying anything to see what the impact will be. Um, and yeah, I mean, another thing you, you, you said it earlier, remember that, you know, uh, most of the time, you know, higher HRV is better. So, you know, it's going the opposite way to your resting heart rate. And, and when you make changes, uh, then an increasing HRV, um, you know, will lead to a trend upwards to a, to a, a higher baseline. And um, if, that's, if that's induced by fitness, then your resting heart rate will trend in the other direction, but it, it may take longer to do that than, than HRV does. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Is there any other final comments that you have for recreational runners to use heart rate var variability? Maybe something we haven't talked about. Any other final takeaways or do you think we've covered everything? Um, I... Uh, for recreational runners, I mean, I, I think it is a, you know, it, it is a good tool. Um, you know, you, you use it, um, you use it fairly carefully, perhaps talk to other people in your running club or group that you, you know, ask them about their experiences with HRV, what they liked about it, what they didn't like about it. Um, you know, read on the, on the net, listen to, you know, podcasts like, 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 like your one. Um, and sort of build up a bit of knowledge around it. I, I think ultimately it will reward you because if you can find ways of increasing your HRV over the long term, it'll lead to higher fitness, better resilience, and better prospects for long, longevity all around. So it's a worthwhile investment. Um, in my view, it's it's not something that you you know uh, that, that you kind of try for a couple of weeks, didn't like it, throw it away. It, it, it will work for you. If, you if you put a bit of investment in in your time and understanding then um, I'm, I'm fairly confident it will not only reward you but it will tell you something about your body that you didn't know before and I, I will pretty much guarantee that to anybody if you use it carefully and properly for a month to six weeks then you will learn something about your body that you didn't know before and I don't know whether that's has that been your experience Brody you learned something about yourself that you didn't know before one thing that I could share is like I was measuring my heart rate, heart rate variability while I was doing um, triathlons and they were mainly like sprint triathlons. So I was working at a fairly high intensity at an intensity I don't usually train at. And what I was surprised about is how 
long it took me for my body to get back to my baseline heart rate variability. It took probably about three days and whatever that reason, yeah. maybe after the races, I was also having like sugary foods or something. And like, I just get like, I'm pumped when it comes to race days. And so I'm like jacked, I'm like ready to go. Like there's a, a big excitement now. I just love race days, but yeah, I'd wake up two days after that and I still wouldn't have recovered. I'm like, okay, maybe we're just doing more rest days. And so I was feeling great, but I guess my body hasn't rebounded from that. So that's one thing that I've learned about my body for sure. And I guess yeah. there's the the food side of things, alcohol side of things. I don't drink a lot, but sometimes if I do have a couple of beers, it's like my, um, yeah, my body just doesn't seem to to recover as well as it would have. And so, yeah, I'm constantly learning just new things. Yeah. I think that that's I'm, I'm a couple of I've got a few years on you and uh, as you get older then recovery becomes you know you have to put more and more attention into your recovery for it to uh, for it for it to go well and and certainly race day efforts do you know they, they take several days afterwards before you get anywhere near back to normal. Yeah. If someone is loving this topic and wants to know more, um, you do have your website website and you did mention some social media. Where can people go if they want to learn more about this? Yeah, sure. I mean, they can go to the go to the website and probably the easiest way to do that is just to type iThleet into Google. So I-T-H-L-E-T-E into Google and you'll find our social media and the website there. And there's, there's, uh, there's, probably 120 or more articles now in the blog area of the website. So we've done a lot of summaries of important pieces of research, including HRV guided training, which has got um, really good potential um, to improve the effectiveness of your training. And, um, uh, you know, for the participants in those trials, you know, they, they pretty much all performed better than they did on a standard coach program. There's lots on HRV and health, um, a little bit about our, you know, our, our coronavirus um, research program that we did. Um, and of course, on, on sensors, some of the history of HRV as well. So if, if you're interested, please do um, uh, visit that blog area of the website. Yeah, absolutely. And I've delved into it as well. And I do love that you, because a lot of the athletes that visit your website won't be too well versed in heavy literature, scientific studies, that kind of thing. And I do love that you have created a bit of a summary for all of those, those, and there's like some with runners, there's some with cyclists, rugby players, um, like just sports athletes in general. So um, there might be some really nice research if someone wanted to delve deeper into the, this topic and your website's great for um, the apps that you have and the sensors that you have. So if anyone wants to learn more about that, feel free to go to that website. I'll include the link in the show notes as well. So if you don't want to type iThlete into the into Google, you can just scroll down the show notes and click on the link. Um, that would be an easier way to, to take you to that website as well. And I'll include the social media handles and everything in there as well. Um, Simon, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge, sharing your expertise. I, one of the things I really love about this is some people might not know how much of an impact things like stress and things like sleep and things like diet might have on their recovery. And they might think, yeah, I know it does hinder, but they're not too sure to what extent. And they think that it's kind of permission to continue to train at higher levels. And like I said, like you said, there's sometimes you might learn more about your body than 
you might already know. And that might be that how affected you are by these things or how long it does take to recover with these certain variables. So this topic is very exciting for me and I'm excited to see where it develops in the next couple of years as more literature comes out. And with this whole COVID thing, I'm sure there's going to be more uh, literature that does come out. So um, yeah, it's exciting. And um, there wouldn't be a better person I, I thought to have on to talk about this conversation. So once again, thanks for sharing your expertise and thanks for coming on. Very welcome, Brody. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Run Smarter Podcast. I hope you can see the impact this content has on your future running. If you appreciate the mission this podcast is creating, it would mean a lot to me if you submit a rating and review. If you want to continue expanding your knowledge, please subscribe to the podcast and get instant notifications when a new episode comes out. If you want to learn quicker, then join our Facebook group by searching the podcast title. If you want to take your learning to the next step, including injury prevention principles, injury-specific insights, and modules to boost your running performance, then head to our website by searching runsmarter.online and jump into our Run Smarter online course. Once again, thank you for listening and becoming a Run Smarter scholar. And remember, knowledge is power.